Good afternoon, Lafayette. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5. KPL looking out on Bertrand Drive. We see what appears to be a group of protesters out there on the street right now. Uh, I cannot tell what their signs say from here, but God bless your freedom of speech and your ability to go out there and protest or support whatever it is that you are supporting. God bless you. Because you have First Amendment rights and the Supreme Court upheld today that those rights exist even if you work in the public education system or for a government agency. Mark, how do you like that segue? Because I just tried my very best on that. I think it's good, Joe. And I'll look for my binoculars so I can read those signs. In an opinion that was uh, handed down from uh, the Supreme Court authored by Neil Gorsuch, here's what the Supreme Court held today in the case of the high school football coach Joe Kennedy, who was fired for holding private prayer at midfield in an empty stadium. Here, a government entity sought to punish an individual for engaging in a brief, quiet, personal religious observance doubly protected by the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment. And the only meaningful justification the government offered for its reprisal rested on a mistaken view that it had a duty to ferret out and suppress religious observances even as it allows comparable secular speech. The Constitution neither mandates nor tolerates that kind of discrimination. So in other words, this coach, Joe Kennedy, has the right to pray and thank his God for a victory. And that's what he was doing. He never once told his team that they had to pray with him. He never forced them to pray. He never discriminated against anybody who didn't pray with him. In fact, all he he, he wanted to pray, the district said, well, you can't do that around kids. So he would go out to the field when everybody was gone from the stadium. And he would kneel at the 50-yard line and say a prayer giving thanks to God. And the school board, the school district he worked for, fired him for it. And say, you know, it's kind of like the uh, the uh, tuition case, the main uh, the main high school tuition case that was uh, that was had an opinion handed out from the court uh, last week, where the Supreme Court said, "I'm sorry." You cannot tell a person that they can use this high school tuition money for any private school except a religious one simply because you were trying to because you were trying to discriminate against schools that have a religious belief. If you offer the tuition money for any private school, it has to include non-secular schools. Much in the same way here, you have the right to practice your faith in your daily life without somebody from the government telling you you cannot. Even if you are trying to be quote-unquote fair to those who may not share those beliefs, you cannot impose a religion on anybody and you cannot discriminate against anybody's religion for what they practice. That is what the Supreme Court held last week and that's what it held today. Now you have folks like uh, a writer at The Atlantic, David Frum, who claims to have been a conservative at one point, who says things on Twitter like this, Supreme Court opens way for rousing chants of Allahu Akbar before high school sporting events. Yes, that's what we're saying. You can go out and you can pray to whatever God you want to before a high school game and the school district cannot punish you. That's what the Supreme Court said. It is mind-boggling 
that the left constantly thinks that the right is going to be like, oh, this is okay just for Christians, but you can't do it if you're a Muslim or a Jew. No. In fact, in the uh, main case from last week, somebody else said, we should just push for Muslim school groups to start opening schools across Maine. In total ignorance of the fact that a Muslim school group, a Muslim private school group, actually filed an amicus brief in support of the Christian schools that were saying we should be allowed, or parents should be allowed to use that tuition money to send our kids to our schools. Yes, conservatives believe that a freedom of religion to express, to profess, to practice your religion in the public square applies to everybody. The left just doesn't want Christians to be in the public square. And this goes to a legal argument that is growing on the right, that is gaining more popularity on the right, and that we're starting to see in these Supreme Court cases. The legal theory that secularism now is a religion. Not in terms of what it professes or what it believes, but secularism, by picking secularism over any particular religion, you are in fact taking up a, you are actually promoting one religion over the other. The tenets of secularism are much like the tenets of Christianity. You are supporting one belief over another belief, and that is what the First Amendment is against. So good for the Supreme Court. And this is just one more big victory for conservatives in the Supreme Court. Now, I'm going to take a break. We're going to take a jump after this segment. Uh, former Puerto Rican governor Luis Fortunio will be joining us on the air to talk about Puerto Rican statehood. And this kind of fits in with the theme of today because we're talking about the Supreme Court and the fact that the Democrats are out there lamenting the death of democracy. Meanwhile, Republicans are joining with Democrats to push a bill to bring up statehood for Puerto Rico. So we're going to go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we will have that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPEL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show. This is Joe Cunningham here on News Talk 96.5 KPEL. Now, in a lot of what we've seen in the Supreme Court cases, we've seen the left lamenting the so-called death of democracy. But what we're actually seeing is that the rights of the people are routinely being respected by the Supreme Court and honored and reinforced by the Supreme Court. Now, when it comes to democracy and the rights of the people, one of the issues that I think a lot of people just in general American politics overlooks is the status of Puerto Rico. And joining us on the line, we have former Governor Luis Fortuño, who is joining us to talk about a new movement in Congress, a bipartisan movement in Congress to give Puerto Ricans the opportunity once again to vote on their future as a U.S. territory. Do they become a state? Do they become independent? Governor, thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself and your involvement with this movement to bring either statehood or a level of independence to the Puerto Rican people and get us out of this kind of outdated territorial system that we've been in. By all means. Uh I uh, as uh, actually uh, a student of our constitution. I realized early on that uh, our founding fathers, uh, actually, when they provided in the constitution for territories, 
to uh, to exist, uh, that was meant to be a temporary status. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was meant for, for example, all, all the land uh, west of the original 13 colonies and so on and so forth, and any other uh, territories that that actually uh, came to being part of a nation in the future, like Alaska or Hawaii, for example. Uh, Puerto Rico has been uh, part of the United States, a U.S. territory, since 1898. So we're talking about you know close to 125 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are proud to be American citizens. Our uh, actually our uh, citizens have fought in every single war since uh, the first world war. Uh, actually, over 200,000 so far. Uh, oftentimes, in greater numbers, uh, proportionally speaking, than most states. So we are proud of our of being part of the nation. At the same time, that that and 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 if we move anyone from Puerto Rico moves to the mainland uh, as an American citizen, uh, they will be able to vote for the president, elect their, their two senators, and so on and so forth. If you were to move to Puerto Rico, mm-hmm. you would lose those rights. So it's strictly geographic. Uh, we are American citizens, natural-born American citizens. It's geographic, and this makes no sense in the 21st century anymore. And I realize this, and that's why I have been involved, represented Puerto Rican Congress for four years, uh, served for four years as governor, and even you know, out of public service, I continue to be involved. So just kind of looking at the issue, it's not just something that Puerto Ricans feel very strongly about. We, we see support. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is a supporter of this movement. Uh, former President Trump, uh, Senators Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, um, Senator Mitt Romney. So we have a lot of big name Republicans here in the U.S. who are all in, in, in among our states who are in support of this movement as well. So what is it going to take to I, I think there's a bill uh, in Congress right now. They're working on a bill right now. What's it going to take to get that forward? And what would this do? for the Puerto Rican people. Well, every single Republican president, uh, actually since Eisenhower, Reagan made it a big big deal when he uh, actually run, ran for president in 1980, has supported uh, a state for Puerto Rico. But the bottom line is that this should not be imposed uh, by Congress. Uh, Congress should provide for a mechanism mm-hmm. to be able to to vote and uh, and what it, what it is required is legislation. To uh, actually uh, hold a vote in Puerto Rico, and then implement whatever the uh, uh, actually will of the voters is, because Congress, uh, under our current territorial status, Congress retains full authority over the territory. So only Congress can actually uh, move uh, the island or provide for a process to move the island to the next next level. So. I know that in the past there there have been votes that have come up before uh, before Puerto Rican voters before. What has been the holdback in terms of of voting for statehood then, and what do you think, in your opinion, is different now? Well, back in the early fifties, uh, the uh, voters, uh, you know, had. Uh, preference probably for the current territorial status. And it actually, I must say, it worked well uh, for a number of years. But there has been a, I would say, a process whereby voters have come to realize that it's no longer a good deal 
especially since uh, there are so many Americans of Puerto Rican descent that have moved to the U.S. mainland uh, ever since. And, uh, and nowadays, uh, more than half mm-hmm. of uh, American citizens of Puerto Rican descent reside in one of the 50 states. So they have come to realize that that this deal is no longer a good deal. Uh, And in 2012, voters uh, in the island rejected the current territorial status by almost 10 percentage points. So that was a break. And from then on, you have had a, a stronger desire to move uh, toward you know a final solution to this to this situation, which makes no sense in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. So let's let's go let's go to you because you've had experience actually as a leader in in Puerto Rico through uh, and and you've seen firsthand what governing a territory is like, and you've been working to try to help Puerto Rico achieve statehood. What does statehood not just mean for Puerto Rico, but what does that mean as far as the United States? What, what would it mean? What What is Puerto Rico bringing to the United States in this? Sure. Well, uh, we've seen in, in the past decade or so uh, an intent on the part of uh, China and Russia to get into what we would consider our backyard, and that is, you know, the Caribbean Basin, for example, and uh, and just cementing in a permanent way the role that uh, nowadays the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico has in the rest of the Union uh, would would actually uh, make the nation's presence stronger in the region. So that that's the first step that that I would I, I think I, we have to highlight it and you know given everything that's going on in the world I believe that's extremely important. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the island has a a strong economy, uh, not just in manufacturing but in tourism and so on. Uh, so that's that's another aspect that that would be uh, certainly important. And nowadays when we have so many problems with our supply supply chain, and, and and especially we had those issues during the pandemic. Uh, Puerto Rico has historically, since the 1950s, been a a, a hub for uh, medical equipment and and pharmaceuticals, and so so that that will be important to you know uh, you know onshore uh, that production and continue to uh, keep that production. In America, uh, and again, Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Hopefully, that could grow uh, as part of that uh, of that process. Well, Governor, thank you very much for joining us today and explaining this issue to us. I, I wish you all the luck in in this movement to try to bring Puerto Rico properly into the United States to get rid of this kind of arcane and, and really unhelpful territorial status. Uh, and and I look forward to uh, continuing our conversations in the future. Glad to have you on today. Well, thank you again. My pleasure. Good day. Good day. Thank you very much. Uh, again, Governor uh, Luis Fortunio, who uh, former governor of Puerto Rico, here advocating for uh, ad- advocating for statehood for Puerto Rico. Uh, very glad to have that on. And of course, again, one of the most interesting things here is the fact that at a time when one half of the country, is, or not even a half, a, a small but very vocal minority of the United States is claiming that democracy is imperiled. Here we are offering 
through the democratic process, a chance for one of our territories to actually become a state. And I think that's a, a very big deal and a very important push that we're seeing. We're going to be taking a break here soon. When we come back from our bottom of the hour news break, of course, your calls 232-1542, but also the, the Democrats are lamenting the Dobbs decision and the, the other decisions as well, but the Dobbs po- uh, posi- uh, decision in particular. I want to take a moment and talk about that and why the, it's not just abortion. There's a big reason the Democrats are really panicking about this. So we're going to have a conversation about that here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to call in, be part of today's conversation. The Democrats are, are absolutely losing it over the Dobbs decision, what it means for Roe versus Wade, and just the issue of abortion itself. The, the primary problem the Democrats are having is that one of their key sacraments, abortion, is now under threat in several states. But here's the thing. The Supreme Court did not ban abortion. That's what they're hysterically basically implying. They can't outright say it because they know it's a lie, but they're implying and they're saying because it's being returned to the states, abortion's all but banned. When you look at what the court held, the court held that the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe in case you're overruled and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. In other words, the right to an abortion does not exist in the Constitution. And the matter should be taken up by states and, in particular, the voters. And that's the problem the Democrats have. When you look at how many states currently have trigger laws, and let's, we'll, we'll talk about Louisiana's in a little bit. In total, 21 states are enacting abor- anti-abortion laws, abortion restrictions. Nine of them had trigger laws in place, including Louisiana. Louisiana is not the only place that has lawsuits coming up over it. We'll see more of those in the future as as judicial activism goes into overdrive here. But nine have bans that have trigger, uh, or nine states have bans enforced by trigger laws that were previously written. Another 12 have laws on the way. The New York Times, in a graphic that shows all this, has also pointed out nine more states that have lawmakers who are interested in abortion restrictions and potentially the numbers to make it happen. These are 30 total states restricting abortion or working on it, and the Republicans have partial or total control over all of them. There are also several states that the Republicans have partial or total control. They haven't made any moves on it yet, but we'll see what Republican voters in those states push for. In Louisiana, John Bell Edwards signed the trigger bill the trigger, uh, the trigger uh, law for abortion banning. He signed it. He lamented that there was not an exception for rape or incest, but he signed it. He cited himself as a pro-life Democrat. Now, you and I can argue that, but objectively speaking, he signed a full abortion ban in the state of Louisiana with only exceptions for the life of the mother. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is out on social media saying not every Democrat is pro-choice. We really need to reassess if it's appropriate for them to continue to serve. In other words, she wants to kick the John Bell Edwards folks out of her party. 
She wants to continue to move further and further to the left. That's where Democrats are struggling. Most of them are angry about the Dobbs decision, not just because of abortion, but because they can't win at the state level. They have arguably had less success at the state level than they've had at the federal level. At the federal level, they're about to lose both houses or both chambers of Congress within two years. They barely won majorities in 2020. They actually lost at the congressional level, even though they won the presidential level in the 2020 elections. In the weeks leading up to the Dobbs ruling, Chuck Schumer twice put up an extreme abortion bill for the vote or for vote. Every Democratic senator voted. I think it may be except Joe Manchin, but every Democratic senator voted for this extreme bill, which said you could abort a child up until the child fully exits the birth canal. That's the most extreme position on abortion. But they cite polling that says, well, every majority of Americans didn't want Roe versus Wade overturned. Do you know why? Because most Americans believe that within the first trimester, yeah, there's some wiggle room. But once you get to the second trimester, support for abortion drops significantly. And late-term abortion is virtually non-existent. It is negligible at best. The Democrats don't want to tell you that. They just want to say, everybody supports abortion. Why are these Republicans imposing their religious views on us? That's not the case. The Republicans have said it is a state issue. It is not explicitly stated in the Constitution. And therefore... It needs to go back to the states. Well, it's not in the Constitution because the founders couldn't perceive these types of things. I'm sorry. If, it cha- if it's dependent on change over time, it's not a universal right. The rights that are guaranteed in the Constitution are universal. They transcend time. You will always have the right no matter the conditions on the ground. It is ignorant to think that the founders could not conceive of technological advancement where it came to firearms where it came to methods of communication. It is silly to think that the founders were like, no, only the status, it only applies to the status quo. And then it's got to change. No, these are universal rights. And the universal right to an abortion does not exist in the constitution. And it's not for some religious reason. It's because it's a state matter. It should be, it's a procedure. It's regulated by the state or it should be. It was not named in the Constitution. It needs to be regulated by the states. Anything not explicitly stated in the Constitution or subsequent amendments should be handled at the state level. And the Democrats are freaking out because they suck at the state level. They have not been able to make any major gains at the state level in quite a while. They've been able to make New York and California bluer. But they cannot make New York or California the template for states across the country because states across the country don't want that. 232-1542, if you want to call in. We've got John on the line. John, how are you today? I'm doing good there, all Joe. Hey, listen, the Democrats can thank one of their own for all of this because when Harry Reid changed the rules and yep. did it over the filibuster and other stuff, mm-hmm. he set this, this wheel in motion. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's ironic. You know, so, you know, they, they may want to reconsider. Yeah, you're absolutely. if I drop, go ahead. No, you, uh, you cut out for a second there, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Harry Reid, by getting just frustrated with Republicans for filibustering judicial nominees, pulled, uh, he, he triggered the nuclear option for judicial votes, for judicial nominations. And what happened? That gave Mitch McConnell the ability to do that for Supreme Court nominations. And here we are, three justices later, 
And the Republicans now have a solid conservative majority, a conservative majority that is focused on the actual original text of the Constitution, the actual textual meaning of what's written in the Constitution, and the difference between what is a right and what is something that should be delegated to the states. That's one of the things, by the way, that I think is just extraordinary in all this. Everybody's going after Clarence Thomas for his concurring opinion that said where he said he'd go after Griswold, he'd go after uh, Obergefell and, and these other cases. And they're also, oh, well, Thomas wants to go and, and take away your right, the right to gay marriage and wants to take away the, the right to contraception and everything. Um, but... Clarence Thomas, all he said was, these are things that, sh- that are not right. So he shouldn't be imposed via judicial fiat. John, thank you very much for the call. But everybody's going after Clarence Thomas for this. Every, and, and they are using some horrible racist language against Clarence Thomas for this. And all he wrote was a concurring opinion that said, these are not things that were ever meant to be decided in the Constitution. They were never in the Constitution. They're not a constitutional issue. These need to be relegated to the states. And in fact, when there was a ban on gay, when when you weren't allowed to have gay marriage in the states, that was one of the biggest cries from the uh, LGBT crowd, from the left, that the federal government shouldn't be involved in this. This this should be a state that this should be, you know, this should be something that states vote on and states allow. Until California uh, Proposition 18, I think. Uh, and, and they had to go in and overturn that. But the left cannot win at the state level. And so they're doing everything they can to try to make it either imposed via judicial fiat, which they've just lost because the Supreme Court now is a 6-3 conservative majority, 5-4 major, uh, conservative majority at worst. And they have nowhere to go. They cannot win at the state level. 232-1542, if you want to call in, be part of the conversation. We are going to take a break. When we come back, more of your calls and some of what else is going on around the country here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5, KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5, KPL 232-1542, if you want to call in, be part of the conversation. And joining us on the line, we've got David. David, how are you this afternoon? Good. Um yeah, I, I, I really uh, love uh, J- uh, Justice Clarence Thomas. I think mm-hmm. he's a great, uh, a great judge. Um, I've read his bio, and he's got an interesting past. Um, I, I was reading his, uh, his, um, his opinion on the um, Roe versus Wade, and or part of his where he said he need we need to revisit some other things. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of like. My, you know, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, are they going to revisit um, uh, nationalized health care? No, aka Obamacare. Are they going to recognize? Are they going to go back and revisit Medicare mm-hmm. uh, or Social Security taxes? I mean, things like that that are not in the Constitution that should be left to the states. Like I, I, I've, I am so against the Social Security system as it works. I, I mean, if I could put aside. What I put aside in Social Security all through my life, I'd be a millionaire right now. Instead, I'm left with just, you know, a little bit of a check for investing so much money in it over the years. But, yeah, I would love to see them go back and take up some things that are are considered uh, mainstream but are not in the Constitution, which we seem to think that the government's supposed to provide. 
Yeah, that's. I, I think that's an interesting point. And it, you know, if you read any of Thomas's opinions, uh, it, it's very clear that he would really love to go back and revisit these. Now, the, the Supreme Court can't just decide to go back and look at these things arbitrarily. I mean, they, the 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 law the, the lawsuit has to come up to them. But I think it's a very interesting case. That, uh, you know, if you were to bring up, well, the, the ones he mentioned specifically are like Griswold, the contraception case, uh, Obergefell, uh, the, the, the gay marriage case. I think if you, if you bring those up and you, 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 you have those lawsuits, but those aren't going to come up to the Supreme Court. He's just saying that he would love to revisit those. Same yeah. with the Affordable Care Act. If that were to come back up, I think the conservative majority would be very different in their opinion, yeah. than what uh, than what John Roberts authored back when this was when this first came up before the Supreme Court back in the Obamacare days, uh, yeah. but yeah, it, John Roberts argued for the government. He argued for the government and in, while the case was going on. Yes, and what's I think most interesting about that is that the very arguments he used there were arguments that he would later use in several cases that the progressives won. When he was in the minority as a conservative, he would he would argue against the very things that he was advocating for in the Affordable Care Act case. David, thank you very much for the call. Thanks uh, for your input. And, and, you know, you're you're absolutely right. The biography of Clarence Thomas is interesting. There's this apocryphal story. It ran in uh, the New York Times at some point. I don't know if it's true or not, but it would make it would make me respect Clarence Thomas a whole lot more if it is true. Uh, where a former uh, former legal aide or, or something to Thomas said, uh, for 43 years the liberals made my life a nightmare. Now I'm going for the next 43 years I'll return the favor. And of course he's talking about growing up in, you know, in the Jim Crow era and everything like that. I think that would be actually pretty hilarious and pretty phenomenal. But you know, Thomas is I. If you ever read any of the opinions of Antonin Scalia, Scalia was an effective he was an effectively powerful writer and Thomas is much the same way. They agreed most of the time that there were subtle differences in what they um, ultimately pursued in judicial philosophy. They were in line 98, 99% of the time, but there is a level of passion in Thomas's writing that you don't actually get just observing him during hearings and listening to his line of questioning and, and things like that you get this immensely powerful legal mind and a lot of emotion that goes into it without it being an emotional, uh, hysteric opinion, which is what Sonia Sotomayor gives us in these religious liberty cases that have come out in the past two weeks, today's and the one uh, last week, where she is lamenting that, oh, we're, we are ignoring the separation of church and state and blah, 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 and that's, the separation of church and state doesn't exist. She's just getting hysterical because progressive platforms are now just being ignored by the conservative majority. Whereas all the conservative majority is saying is, no, you have a right to practice your faith. You have a right to express your religious beliefs in the public square. You cannot ignore that. And I think that is actually going to be a pretty big issue going forward. And Thomas is right there on top of it. And, you know, I have to also say, I'm not a lawyer. But when it comes to reading Supreme Court opinions, I've enjoyed reading Scalia's in the past. I've enjoyed reading Thomas's. Alito, who wrote the Dobbs opinion, is a lot more succinct as an opinion writer, and his you can understand at a very at a much like at a much lower reading level, really. But we have 
in those three incredibly powerful writers. And actually what we're seeing from Amy Coney Barrett, from Neil Gorsuch, and from Brett Kavanaugh is a lot of newer legal thought and approaches, but all coming to the same conclusions, which I think is very, very important. Conservative judicial philosophy is actually reaching a pinnacle right now. It's it's reaching new heights right now because the Supreme Court is conservative and is looking at things from a conservative, I don't want to say traditional because that has the wrong connotation, but originalist, textualist interpretation of the Constitution, which, when the idea of constitutional review was established, is what was actually had in mind. The idea that judicial review is there to check what's in play versus what the Constitution actually calls for. And the Constitution actually calls for a limited federal government that has powers stated in the Constitution and anything not stated in the Constitution should go to the states. That's it. And that's what they have been pushing in this latest round of opinions that your rights, excuse me, that your rights were guns, speech, uh, religion, where those are concerned, those rights are protected. They are sacrosanct. You cannot abridge them. And things that are not directly listed as rights in the Constitution, that are not universal rights, that you cannot say will be rights forever and ever, that aren't dependent on something else. Those are best left to the states. It's a new era of conservative judicial theory, and I think it's a good sign. Excuse me, sorry. Now, before we go, one quick thing. There is a new story out from the Associated Press. I want to talk about this a little more tomorrow. There's a new story out from the Associated Press. One million voters have shifted their their voter registration to the GOP. That's a big warning sign from Democrats who think that Roe versus Wade will actually be a good recruiting tool for them in the midterms. But the Republicans are seeing massive numbers and massive enthusiasm. And it will only grow. That's it for me. Stick around. I will be joining Shannon on Offsides here in just a few moments. In the meantime, check me out on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show, and check out the podcast version of the show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you guys again soon.